you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 20, and we'll read this morning verses 11 through 18 of John, chapter 20. Uh, If you are visiting with us, we've been in a series of sermons in the Gospel of John. We're nearing the end of uh, this Gospel account of the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Uh, we've, we've seen now the crucifixion of the Lord and something of His resurrection, at least the empty tomb. We've not yet seen, though, the risen Christ Himself. We'll see Him this morning in this passage. Please follow along as I read John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he said these things to her. Can I ask that we pray once more? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, please assist us now in the consideration of your word by the help of your Holy Spirit. Come upon each one of us now. Help us to see the truth of your word, to submit our wills and our lives to it. Father, would you please help us? Would you please give us a sight of the Lord Jesus and what he has accomplished for us in the next 45 minutes? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. After today, God willing, we have just four more messages in the Gospel of John. We've covered a great deal. And there's so much of the last few chapters of John's gospel. It's just sort of climax after climax, big event, big revelation after big revelation. In the text we're looking at this morning, of course, the great drama of the crucifixion is behind us where the Lord Jesus uttered those profound words, it is finished. The climax of the resurrection is in the rear view. That has now been revealed that indeed the Christ must rise according to the Scriptures and indeed has risen. And now the camera pans away from Golgotha, away from the cross and away from the empty tomb to a humble woman weeping in the garden outside of the tomb. And her name, perhaps familiar to many of us, is Mary Magdalene. And she is, at least in these moments, bereft and brokenhearted. They've taken away my Lord, she says, and I don't know where they've laid him. This is the setup, the context, the prelude for the first appearance of the Lord Jesus after his resurrection. This is the first time we will see the risen Christ, the Lord of glory, the one who conquered the grave and who defeated sin and death. Now, how would you think he would choose to reveal himself after his resurrection. Uh, Every detail was planned before the foundations of the world. Nothing is happening in this narrative by accident. John has emphasized that again and again uh, as as we've seen the, the relatively mundane events taking place at the cross, at the tomb, are said to be in fulfillment of the Scriptures themselves. That is long foretold prophecy from a thousand years, sometimes 1,500 years prior uh, to these events. So how do you think the risen Christ would choose to first reveal Himself after His resurrection? Perhaps some grand 
angelic announcement, something like what we have in Luke 2 at the birth of Jesus when the the angel of the Lord comes, he speaks to the shepherds who are out in their fields, and then the company of the heavenly hosts surround him and sing glory to God in the highest. Perhaps another triumphal entry of sorts, maybe this time with a little more fanfare, Uh, perhaps appearing before great crowds by some miraculous display or something like that for all to see. But of course, it's none of that at all. The same Savior who elected to be born in a stable to humble parents, who chose to be brought up as a carpenter's boy, the same one who processed into Jerusalem riding on a donkey's colt, who brought together as his followers a small band of humble fishermen and tax collectors, this same one chooses for his grand appearance after his resurrection to be before a humble woman weeping outside the tomb. And it's to her that he reveals one of the most wonderful truths in all of the Bible. Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. Well, I want to open up this passage under three main headings this morning. First, I want to ask the question, who is Mary? Who is Mary Magdalene? Secondly, who is Jesus? And thirdly, what does Jesus reveal to Mary? Who is Mary? Who is Jesus? What does Jesus reveal to Mary? And then we'll close with a couple of applications. Number one, who, who is Mary? Who's Mary Magdalene? There's a few things we we know about her. We know that she has been delivered uh, from an exceedingly sinful background. Uh, Luke 8 tells us that a number of women followed Jesus who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Uh, Mary, called Magdalene, was among them from whom seven demons had gone out. Uh, We should probably imagine that Mary was in some ways uh, personally an exceedingly sinful woman. She had an exceedingly sinful background. She had to be delivered of evil spirits and infirmities. However, it would not be inappropriate also to regard Mary as something of a victim, a victim of demonic activity. The demons had targeted Mary in a major way, and I think the detail that that out of Mary the Lord cast these seven demons is meant to accentuate, to to emphasize uh, the serious degree to which these demons had harassed and abused her. Seven demons were cast out of Mary. So she's an exceedingly sinful woman, the victim of satanic attack, demonic activity. A Christian tradition holds that Mary Magdalene was perhaps uh, a loose woman with an especially sinful past. Hollywood portrayals of Mary tend to sensationalize her sinful background and frankly tend to go beyond what can be established by the biblical record. Uh, But nonetheless, it is true that a few centuries after the gospel accounts were recorded, there did emerge a tradition that held that Mary was an especially sinful woman who perhaps gave herself to sexual immorality in a pronounced way. Well, what we can say clearly from the text is that Mary had a horrible background. She had a terrible past, a very dark background. It certainly involved great sin and wickedness, and in her case, actual demonic possession. Her own personal sin and the demonic involvement in her life all contributed to make Mary in some ways notorious uh, as a wicked person. We also know that she was from Magdala, Mary Magdalene, that's not her last name. It's a reference to where she was from, the town of Magdala. Magdala was a wealthy coastal town on the Sea of Galilee. It was known for its wealth, uh, but also for its sinful degradation. Uh, Roman soldiers, when they were on leave, this was one of the places where they would be stationed, soldiers on leave. It's not hard to imagine the sort of activity that such men would engage in. They're probably not going to Magdala to make a happy home or to drink tea or something like that. Uh, You could imagine the sorts of activities that soldiers would engage in while on leave in this wealthy coastal town. Uh, One Greek scholar has said, uh, uh, to speak of Mary of Magdala, For us would be to speak like Lucy of Las Vegas, uh, the connotations that might come with that. She might have been Mary of Bethany, the sister of Martha and the sister of Lazarus, who we saw back in John 11, but we don't know that for certain. I personally find that hard to believe. She might have been the sinful woman of Luke 7, the one who washed Jesus' feet uh, with her tears and with her hair. We don't know that for certain. I think the textual links are a little stronger there, but we don't know if she was 
that woman in Luke 7. We do know that wonderfully Jesus healed her and that she became a follower of the Lord Jesus. He cast the demons out of Mary, and He became her Lord, her Savior, her Deliverer, and she followed after Jesus. We do know that Mary Magdalene was at the cross uh, along with a few other women. She witnessed the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. We also know uh, that she probably participated in the burial ritual, the burial of the Lord Jesus. Now, that's not made clear in the Gospel of John, but in the other Gospel accounts, they seem to indicate that she and the other women that were there at the cross were somehow involved in the burial of the Lord Jesus. So what do we know of Mary? She was from Magdala. She had a sinful background. She had been possessed by seven demons. The Lord delivered her, and she became a follower of Jesus. We know she was at the cross, and she saw the Lord as He was crucified, and she was probably involved in the burial of Jesus. But then our text this morning tells us more about Mary. Consider this. Uh, First of all, that Mary was chosen by God to be the first witness of the resurrected Christ. Mary Magdalene, I mean, I just told you about all we can surmise from her background from Scripture. Mary Magdalene was selected to be the first witness of the resurrected Christ. Now, I wonder if any of us would have chosen Mary. Uh, We might have chosen Peter or James or John certainly someone else, Uh, but God, who planned all things from eternity past, purposed that after His Son had died on the cross for the sins of the world, after He had risen from the dead, the very first individual He would appear to would be Mary of Magdala. But, But not only was she the first witness of the resurrected Christ, but she was the first witness to the resurrected Christ. Uh, It's Mary that's told to go and to make this announcement to the Lord's disciples that indeed the Lord is risen and He's about to ascend to His Father and their Father, to His God and their God. Mary is called to be a witness, called to share the gospel, the good news that Christ has died and has risen again. I, I find those last two facts, that Mary was the witness, first witness of the risen Christ and first witness to the risen Christ, to be very significant for at least three reasons. Number one, I think this dignifies women in a major way. In a culture in which a woman's testimony would not be admitted in a courtroom as legitimate evidence, I think this is immensely significant. God chose her. She would be the first witness. A woman who would have been despised and looked down upon in her own day, God has elevated to be the first witness to the risen Christ, the first one to tell of the gospel, to tell the good news. Secondly, I think this is significant also, uh, because this is one of the many details, many details, uh, that further vindicates the gospel accounts as authentic and accurate. All I mean to say here is that if you were making up this story, if this was all a gigantic hoax, you would not have the risen Lord appearing to Mary of Magdala. Uh, she, She would not be the one Uh, you would have the Lord appearing to. Maybe someone else, maybe another triumphal entry, maybe some supernatural display, but you wouldn't have Him appearing to this humble woman who was a notoriously sinful woman who would have been despised and looked down upon in her own day. This, This lends itself to the truthfulness and the accuracy of the gospel accounts. Third reason I think this is so significant, Mary is told to witness, to tell the disciples what she has seen and heard, she was called to testify to the risen Christ. And I contend that her calling belongs to every woman who has seen the risen Christ by faith. Every woman is to testify to the grace of God and to the resurrected Lord. Speaking the gospel to others, spreading the faith, testifying about the grace of God in Christ Jesus and what He has done for us, that is not the province of a few qualified men only. It's not the province of just men generally. God calls women to testify to the gospel itself and to the grace of God at work in their lives to save them from their sins. And so it's no surprise that he tells Mary, go, go tell my brothers, testify to this. And she makes this glorious announcement, I have seen the Lord. 
And she tells them all that she had heard from Jesus. Well, that's Mary. Now, secondly, uh, who is Jesus? And I, I mean, who is Jesus with reference to Mary? Obviously, the whole gospel's been telling us who Jesus is, but, but who is Jesus with reference to Mary? Uh, well, Jesus was Mary's deliverer. Uh, he was her hero, her champion, uh, the one who had snatched her from the clutches of Satan. He healed her of her demons. And he made everything well with her. Jesus was everything to Mary. Her whole life had been changed by the Lord Jesus. Uh, moreover, uh, Jesus was the Savior of her soul. He had just died on the cross for her sins and the sins of the world. We must remember that when we see Jesus interacting with various individuals, with the disciples, those whom He loved, those who followed Him, He's dying for their sins. He's going to the cross for them and for the sins of every other person who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. He's on the cross for Mary, and He is raised for her justification. It's probable that Mary had not yet worked out all the implications of Jesus' death and resurrection, but He had nonetheless died for her, and He had nonetheless risen for her. Furthermore, Jesus is Mary's shepherd. Remember, He Himself said, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. Do you remember what was said of the good shepherd? The sheep hear His voice. He calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. Now, Mary didn't recognize Jesus at first. Uh, she mistakes him for the gardener. Uh, the gospel writers at different points highlight this, that something about the appearance of Jesus uh, sort of cast a veil over the eyes who saw him at first. He wasn't immediately recognizable to them. But what is it that causes Mary to finally recognize her Lord? He simply calls her by name. She hears the shepherd's voice, her own name in his own familiar voice, Mary. And she says, Rabboni, my master, my teacher, my Lord, my shepherd. Now, there's a subtlety in the Greek you don't see uh, in the English. I've become aware there are at least a few people who actually reading on Sundays in the Greek New Testament, so you hold me accountable on this. Uh, there's a subtlety there that you don't see in the English. In, in John 19, verse 25, Mary's name is, is Mary in the Greek, it's Mary in English. In John 20, verse 11, it's Mary in the Greek, Mary in the English. But here now, when Jesus calls her name, He doesn't call her Mary. Uh, he calls her Miriam. Miriam. That probably would have been the name that she had as a little girl. The name that she had before she embarked on her sinful career in Magdala, Miriam was not the name that her sinful friends knew her by. It's not the name that perhaps her customers knew her by. Miriam was, was not the name that made the headlines. No, Miriam was her name back when she was a little girl, innocent, unspoiled, untainted, by the world, by her own sin, by the attacks of Satan and the demons. Perhaps that name represented to Mary uh, something, something pure, uh, a past that she would love to recover. Perhaps she reflected on all the bad that had happened uh, between now and the last time she was called by this name. But this is the name Jesus uses for her, because he knew her, see, when she was just a little girl. He knew her story from beginning to end, and in a, with a word, a name that would have evoked familiarity and intimacy, he, he calls her out, Miriam. And she, Jesus, little lamb, hears the voice of the shepherd, and she recognizes him immediately. And she says, my Lord, my master. Jesus knew Mary completely. He knew her before her dark and sinful career began in Magdala. He knew her as his own little lamb who had heard his voice and followed him. Jesus loved Mary. He was her shepherd and her savior. And what's more, she is the one to whom Jesus chooses to reveal himself first after his resurrection. And she's the one. Jesus selects her 
to share the gospel to her brothers. Well, now, thirdly, consider with me, uh, what does Jesus reveal to Mary? Who is Mary? Who is Jesus? Now, thirdly, what does Jesus reveal to Mary? She calls her by name. She recognizes him. She knows now she's in the presence of the risen Lord. What does Jesus then say to her? Look with me at verse 17. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. First of all, he says, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. One of the commentators says, this is among the most difficult phrases in all of the Bible to interpret. Uh, What is it that Jesus means? Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. I don't actually really know what it means. Uh, I thought about sharing with you the four or five most prominent interpretations. I'm just going to tell you the one that I find most compelling, okay? Uh, I think we're to imagine, remember, Mary had seen the Lord on the cross, seen His body hanging there, how agonizing that must have been for her. And she saw His body being wrapped in the linen garments and, 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 and the perfumes that were put upon Jesus. She saw his body buried. Now she sees his body risen, and she grabs hold of him. I think we're to imagine she's, she's clinging to the Lord Jesus, and, and if it's up to her, she's never going to let him go again. Here is her Lord before her, the, the realization of hope she didn't even know she could have. And she's clinging to Jesus. And frankly, I think Jesus is just saying, I'm not going anywhere just yet. There's no need to cling to me. I've not yet ascended to the Father. We're going to have some time together, but right now there's something of greater urgency you must do. He's not saying, like, don't touch me, my body can't be touched at this point or something like that. I think he's saying there's no need to cling to me. I'm not going anywhere right now. I've not yet ascended to the Father. And then he tells her, but go to my brothers. And I just find that so sweet uh, that Jesus now risen. You might wonder uh, what the Lord had thought of those men who certainly did not act like brothers. In Jesus' fateful hour, they had denied any sort of attachment to him. Some denied even knowing who he was. They had not acted like brothers. And you could understand that if if Jesus rose with some some anger and some scores to settle, uh, maybe he doesn't abandon them entirely and cease loving them, but he might give them a what for or something. He, He doesn't do that at all. He doesn't rise with any malice or any anger. You get the sense from these words, all is forgiven and forgotten. Go to my brothers. You can imagine the disciples wondering, what will the Lord do to us when he sees us? It might not have been all good news that Jesus had risen. Will he hold us to account for our faithlessness? But here Jesus says, go to my brothers, those men who are precious to me, those men who have stood with me. Go to them. And then Jesus reveals to Mary one of the most wonderful things in all the Bible. He says, Tell them, my brothers, that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now, maybe we're so familiar with the concept of God as our Father that we miss the climax of this statement. This is the first time in the Gospel of John in which Jesus speaks of God not only as His Father, but as the father of the disciples also. What's more, Jesus has been saying so much about the very unique relationship he alone possesses with his father. God the Father is the father of the Son. It is a relationship altogether unique. It is marked by a sort of exclusive intimacy that no one can fully appreciate or understand. He says on at least two occasions, I and the Father are one. Jesus said that he alone is the way to the Father. Jesus says that He speaks only of what He has heard in the presence of His Father. He does the works that He has seen the Father doing. He has unique communion with the Father, unique knowledge of the Father. It's a unique relationship of love and intimacy and oneness, sort of intimacy that Jesus alone shares with the Father. And you can imagine the disciples hearing Jesus speak in this way of His relationship with the Father during His earthly ministry. You can imagine them being sort of utterly in awe of this relationship. 
The way he speaks about the Father and the things he discloses about the Father. Who speaks like this? Surely this man has been with the Father. He knows the Father in a way that none of us can ever hope to know the Father. They might have the sense that we're sort of standing off at a distance to this mysterious and profound and wonderful relationship that the Lord Jesus shares with his Father. Maybe it's no wonder that Philip says to Jesus in John 14, Lord, show us the Father. It is enough for us. It doesn't say my Father. Show us the Father. If we could just have a glimpse at this relationship you share with your Father, it would be enough for us. It's like, it's like I can die happy and satisfied. If I could just get a, a glimpse at this relationship you, Lord, have with the Father. But now Jesus reveals that through what he has just done for them on the cross, God is reckoned to be the father of believers also. He says, I'm going to my father and your father. To my God and to your God. If you're going to appreciate how climactic this is, uh, you must recognize that at this point in redemptive history, this is a wholly new doctrine. The doctrine of adoption. The idea that we are reckoned to be sons and daughters of God. The Old Testament saints were never permitted to call God their father. Think, think of this. Abraham, Moses, Elijah, David had no knowledge of what it meant to call God their father. David never knew what it was like to say, Abba, Father. We think of how prominent the fatherhood of God is in our thinking about God, but the Old Testament saints didn't think of him in that way. doesn't mean that God wasn't their father. just means that it had not yet been revealed to them that he was their father. To, to move from the 101 to the 401 material, those of you who know what biblical theology is, this is biblical theology. Okay, understanding the introduction and development of doctrines in the context of the canon, taking time into consideration. It hadn't yet been revealed that God was the Father of all those who have faith in the Lord Jesus. But here it is. After the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, now that Jesus has vindicated in every degree who He was and what He has done for sinners, He says, God is reckoned to be your Father also, the Father of all those who believe upon the Son. He says, I'm ascending to my Father, to your Father, my God, and your God. In other words, the relation I have with you is such that you are given access into a new relationship with the Father. That's very much one of the themes, isn't it, of Jesus' high priestly prayer. John 17, verse 9, Jesus says to His Father, I'm praying for them, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Verse 22 of John 17, he says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. The, the prayer is anticipating this new relationship that believers are going to have with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's not only the high priestly prayer that anticipates the doctrine of God as father of believers. Do you remember all the way back in the prologue? I know it's been a long time. But in the opening chapter of John's gospel, opening verses, it was said there in John 1 verse 11, he came to his own, speaking of Jesus, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right, the authority, the power, the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Sinners like Mary, like Peter, like Nicodemus, like the woman at the well, they will be given the right to become the children of God. And what admits them into this position of intimacy with God? How is it that such individuals could be understood, be reckoned to be the actual children of God? It's receiving Jesus Christ 
God's own Son. That's what the text says, to all who did receive Him, the Lord Jesus, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become the children of God. Do you want to be a child of God? You must receive Jesus Christ, God's own Son. You must believe on Him. And for all those who do believe in Him, to them He gives the right to become the children of God. You can't be a child of God if you don't embrace Jesus. This means you can't be a child of God if you're not a Christian. Some people will sometimes blithely say, you know, we're all God's children. Not so, but for all those who receive the Lord Jesus Christ, who believe on His name, who, who forsake sin and put their trust in Him, to them, the Lord gives the right to become, to be called the children of God. And this identity, to be regarded as God's child, comes to control everything about our relationship with God. What is a Christian, asks J.I. Packer. The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as Father. Adoption is the highest privilege the gospel offers. It's more than justification, more than just being pronounced right forensically in the courtroom of God. Packer says it's the highest privilege the gospel offers because adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love, viewing God as Father. In adoption, God takes us into His family and fellowship. He establishes us as His children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. Packer goes on to say, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought, listen, if this is not the thought that, that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Father is the Christian name for God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. The revelation to the believer that God is his Father is in a sense the climax of the Bible. Which is why I say this forms one of the climaxes of John's Gospel. The revelation that Mary, Peter, John, the rest of the disciples, they are reckoned to be the children of God. To be brought into the family of God, closeness, affection, generosity are at the heart of this new relationship. Jesus says, tell them, Mary, that they have God as their Father, that through me they are granted access to the Father. Well, in closing, I want to share just two applications, two, two, two ways in which we can apply this teaching to ourselves. We asked, who is Mary, who is Jesus, what is it that Jesus reveals to Mary? In closing, Two applications, one to Christians and one to those who are not Christians. Number one, through faith in Christ, brother, sister, believing friend, you are given the right to call God your Father. Through faith in Christ, for all who received Him, for all who believed on His name, you are given the right to call God your Father, and you ought to. The relationship to God as Father should be the ruling idea in all your thoughts about God. The ruling idea, not the only idea, but the ruling idea in all your thoughts about God is that He is your Father. To a Christian, God is a lot of things. He's, he's the creator. Uh, he's the author of providence. He's the sovereign ruler over all. He is the judge, yes, of Christians also. But the ruling idea, the idea that is to regulate all of our thinking about God is that He is our Father and we are His children. The reality that I am a child of God is meant to permeate my Christian experience. Now, a lot of people struggle to think of God as their Father. Like a lot of Christians struggle with this. Uh, people will ask, look, I... 
I believe I'm a Christian. I believe the gospel that I've been saved. And I believe that God is my Father. I know the Bible teaches that, but I don't feel like His child. I struggle when I pray to Him, when I sing to Him. I struggle to think of Him as my Father. How can I better experience the fatherhood of God? How can I be more cognizant of the fact that I am His child? It's an immensely important practical question. So so I want to give some practical encouragements that might be helpful to someone in that situation, which would probably surprise us if we knew how many in this room actually struggle with that problem. First of all, let's just start with this. It's a basic principle. And, And I think just knowing some of you, um, this would be like a key for you to unlock a great degree of spiritual blessing if you could wrap your mind around this. You don't have to be sensible of a truth in order for it to be true. You don't have to be sensible of a truth in order for it to be true. What I'm basically saying is you can believe better than you feel. See what I'm saying? But I don't feel like God is my Father, but you can believe better than you feel. I'm saying don't construct your religion, your theology, your view of God based purely on how you feel at any given moment. You don't have to be sensible of the truth. You don't have to feel like God's child to believe and to know that you are God's child. Because it's revealed in His Word, 1 John 3, 2, Behold, we are the children of God now. If you don't feel like God's child, can you at least say, I believe in the authority and inerrancy of the Bible. And it's revealed there that I am God's child. I'm going to work on the emotional part here, but I at least will say it's true I am God's child. You can believe better than you feel. So that's just like a foundation. Start there. Now, I want you to, and I'm certain the Lord Jesus wants you to feel what you believe. And that's what I hope to help you with. Well, if you don't feel like God's child, it might be helpful to first recognize a few obstacles that some people commonly experience in their way to feeling like God's child and getting all the benefit out of the relationship of a son or daughter to the father. One reason I think a lot of people struggle to view God as their father is because they are, uh, in a special way, sensitive to their own sin. Very sensitive to their own sin. You could probably sympathize with, I'm suspecting the disciples felt, when they first heard this news from the mouth of Mary Magdalene. How could we be the children of God? After the way we've treated the Lord, how sinful and unworthy we are. And I'm said to be God's child. And so many people, you're aware of your sin, all the shame that comes with it, all the guilt that comes with it, and you think, I don't have a problem thinking of God as judge. I'm such a sinner, I'm so vile, he's so holy and so perfect. I don't have a problem thinking of him in that way. But as a son to a father, a daughter to a father, it's just too wonderful a thing for a sinner. And and I think this keeps a lot of people from entering into the relationship, at least in all that it's meant to be. It's not altogether bad to be sensible of your own sin and unworthiness. No one should ever in some sort of you know, cocky, brash sort of way, barge into the Lord's presence as if he's earned his way in there and act like some chummy teenager or something like that. There's something healthy about a sense of sin. But nonetheless, I think that sense of sin can become so strong in the minds and hearts of some that it just doesn't connect with them that God is their father. I think another major obstacle for a lot of people is that their earthly father provides them with no frame of reference to think about God as their heavenly father. There's a lot of people who've had bad fathers. And so you hear that God is your father and and the connection's lost on you. Maybe your dad didn't love you 
in the way that he should. Maybe he didn't create an affectionate atmosphere, an environment, the sort of context in which you would feel safe and happy and loved. And so you hear God is your father, you'd prefer to think of him in some other way. Because you have a frame of reference from your own earthly father. And that's not just a problem. People had, a lot of people have great fathers and they still struggle with us. But I think, I've observed for a lot of people who have struggled in relating to their own earthly fathers, it can become an obstacle to entering into a relationship with their heavenly father, at least in all the ways he intends us to enter in. Another obstacle, I think, for a lot of people is that, frankly, they're just temperamentally unemotional. Remember Packer said, familiarity, affection, generosity, closeness is at the heart of this picture. And a lot of us are just very cerebral people. We don't cry often. Um, We're just kind of always in the same mood. We don't emote. The relationship that's being drawn here of a father to a child is meant to produce some emotions in us, and that's just not how we are. We don't deal on that level. I can think cerebrally about what God has told me to do, and then I do that, and quid pro quo, that all makes sense to me. I'm really good at that. But to think of him as a beneficent father who condescends to love me and to care for me and to shepherd me and the idea of the affection and the emotion and the love that's to enter into the relationship, that just doesn't, doesn't register with me. Those are a few of the obstacles. There are, there are others. Okay, so if, if we're going to enter into the fullness of our relationship with God as Father, six practical helps. Okay, six practical helps. If this is you I've been talking about, I want to experience more God as my Father. I want to think of Him when I go to Him in prayer and worship as my Father. Six things for you. Number one, pray. Ask God to help you think of Him in this way. Go to God and say, my Father who is in heaven, help me to believe that statement. Help me to feel that statement that you are my father and that I am your child. Pray often about this. Lord, I know it is your revealed will that I think of you in this way. Help me overcome whatever obstacles are in my heart. Pray and ask the Lord to help you. Number two, find the five or 10 or 15 most prominent verses on adoption and memorize them. Put them on sticky notes all over the bathroom mirror. Placard them on the walls in your bedroom if you have to. You know, there's certain people who did not have very affectionate parents and and, and more than that felt unloved in their own home environment. And for such people, it's often true. They need to hear the words, I love you, more often than most people who had very affectionate parents. They, They just need more reassurance of the reality. Well, if there's a deficit in your heart in terms of thinking of God as as Father, how do you expect that you'll emerge out of that unless you're regularly pouring into your soul and your heart and your mind the truth that God is your Father? There's a shortage of verses. If you need help, I could produce a list for you. Pastor Ben or Pastor Lai Chow. Just go over those verses often. Put them in the front of your Bible. Keep them before your minds. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we are called the children of God, and so we are. I mean, memorize 1 John chapter 3. Go to the Bible. Number three, think often on the picture of the Father in the parable of the prodigal son. Think often of the picture of the Father in the parable of the prodigal son. If you struggle feeling God is your father. You have such a strong and profound sense of your sin. Well, you can sympathize with the prodigal son. He's eaten from the trough by the end of his mad career out there in the world. And what does he say? If I could just come back home and just be like a servant at the door in my father's home, oh, how I would love that. I don't need to be regarded as his son. If I could feed the pigs out in the barn at his house, that's good for me. You might feel that way toward God. But what does that parable reveal about the father? What's the father doing? He's out on the front porch and he's looking. Was my son going to come home? And he sees him a long way off. He runs to him. 
embraces him. He kisses his neck. He wraps him in beautiful robes and he kills the fatted calf to celebrate the son, prodigal son, the sinful son who had come home. He doesn't wait for the son to come and grovel and kiss his feet or something like that. He's looking for the son. His heart is bent toward the son. He runs to the son and embraces him. Think often on the parable of the prodigal son and particularly the picture of the father there. Number four, receive the helps of godly brothers and sisters. I I hope that you're engaged in some discipling relationships, another brother or sister in the church who you just talked to about your Christian walk, share prayer requests with, maybe you have several Christians like that. Just make this part of the conversation. Brother, sister, I just struggle to think of God as my father. I know he's my father, I know that, but I struggle to think of him that way. And I don't feel I'm experiencing all the joy and safety and assurance that would come if I could just wrap my mind around this, that God is indeed my Father. Would you pray for me? Do you have any counsel for me? Anything good you've read that, that I could read? Make this part of your agenda with other brothers and sisters in the church. Number five, get the most out of music and singing. Get the most out of music and singing. Make songs like He Will Hold Me Fast a lifeline to you. So many people I know have struggled with assurance. What a gift that song is. For those he saves are his delight. They find good songs, songs we sing in worship, and enter into them. I mean, just allow your heart and your soul to connect to the truths of those songs. Make the most of music and singing. And number six, and I, I struggle to know the best way how to, to say this one. This is, this is for a small subsection of people in our church, okay? Um, learn to cultivate your emotions. Learn how to get comfortable with emoting. You know, God emotes. Emotion is not a sign of weakness or a sign of losing control or something like that. J.C. Ryle Six foot four, long beard, wore his robes. He was an Anglican minister. He said to be that man of granite with the heart of a child. He's the best kind of man in the world. Man of granite, conviction. He knows how to make an argument, win an argument, heart of a child. He knows how to laugh. He knows how to cry. He knows how to be affectionate. He probably cultivated that disposition. Winston Churchill, that great indispensable man, who stood when no one else would. He was said to weep freely as he walked through the streets of London, witnessing the carnage that had come about through the Blitz. It's not a sign of weakness to allow yourself to emote. It's not a sign of weakness to cultivate an inner life in which affection comes naturally. If you struggle to emote and and a relationship like a father to a son makes me kind of uncomfortable, well, well, Ask the Lord to help you change by, by habit and prayer and study. Seek to cultivate the sort of posture and disposition that will help you in entering into this relationship, this picture of God in which affection and intimacy and generosity are at the core. There are other things that could be said. I submit those to you, hopefully for your good. Second application, the final word. To those who are outside of Christ, you can have God as your Father today. You can know now that you are the children of God. To those outside of Christ, you can have God as your Father. To sinners, to the guilty, to the transgressors, to the orphans and to the fatherless, to the outcast and to the outsider, to the downcast and the downtrodden, to the unlovely and the unloved. You can have God as your perfect, loving, heavenly Father if you will put away your sin and receive Jesus Christ, God's own Son. The invitation is come home. Come home. You'll find the Father standing on the front porch ready to receive you. Come inside. Come home. You should have God as your Father. If you will have done with your sin and embrace God's own Son, to all those who did receive Him, who believed on His name, 
gave the right to become the children of God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we admit to you that it just seems like too grand a thing for us that sinners like us could be reckoned your own children, could be granted a place at the table, could be given your own name united to your own son. It's just too great a thing. How could sinners like us, with all the wrong we've done, all the ways in which we've sinned against you, how is it that we can be called your children? Surely the only way is through what someone else has done for us. All of our hope and our trust is in the Lord Jesus to give us this great blessing of adoption, to give us a place before you as your own children. Help us, Lord, more and more to enter into this experience, to enter into this knowledge, to enter into this relationship in all the ways that you intend for us to enter in. Help us to know you and to think of you and to experience you as our own Father through what your Son, the Lord Jesus, has done. We pray, Father, for any here who are struggling, Christian people here who are struggling, to think of you as their Father. Would you break through all the obstacles and barriers and cause them to be sensible of this great reality, this great privilege, being sons and daughters of the living God. And may we experience all the assurance, all the safety, all the security, all the affection that you want us to experience in this relationship. Father, we thank you. We thank you. That through what our Lord has done, you have made us your own children. We pray that more would enter into this relationship. That more here would receive the Son of God. And through him experience this great gift of adoption. Father, we thank you for that first witness, Mary Magdalene. What a gospel she had to share. Make us faithful in our day, like her, to share with others what you have accomplished through your Son, the Lord Jesus. We pray together in Jesus' name, amen.